Okay. Good evening. This is our last class on this book, Hope for a Better World. So if we don't end up being hopeful at the end of tonight, that's it. No chance until the next round. So um, before we launch into this night's chapter, do we have any questions or comments on anything that's happened in this book? Because this is your last chance. You don't have to. <laughs> You've stayed pretty current. Were you going to speak or are you thinking? Were you going to speak or were you just thinking? Okay. Okay. All right. The chapter that uh, Swami has written for the last of this book really um, sort of ties it all together and is, is his final exhortation to all of us to take seriously the message that he's delivered um, in the hope that he, uh, he can start a revolution through this book. It's, it's um, just reading, uh, talking about more than what's written there. Because, of course, this book was written for an audience that wasn't familiar with Yogananda and wasn't familiar with a lot of things that we're familiar with. I just wanted to take it from the bigger perspective. Um, we weren't uh, present when Yogananda was alive. Of course, none of us ever were at one of his public lectures or ever heard him speak. Um, a great deal of all those recordings and the transcripts of his talks and so on are all... Um, under the control of SRF and the um, the last decision of the last act of that long trial unfortunately left them all in SRF's hands. Master has his own reasons because he didn't have to have it come out that way because it wasn't a, a legally appropriate decision. It was a very good decision, in fact, because SRF was able to declare that they won the trial and therefore were not in a lawsuit with them anymore, which is bliss. But the result of that, it, much to our sort of puzzlement, was that uh, especially voice recordings of Yogananda, there were actually quite a lot of voice recordings, and there are quite a lot of them floating around out there. We just are sort of gradually finding out. Because when Yogananda was alive, when Master was alive, he passed them out, and Dr. Lewis passed them out. and So they went a lot of places, and a lot of people are holding them. However, one of the specific decisions that was made was that SRF owns those recordings, or at least the four in question, and on that basis, no one dares really put them forward again. And also because all of the talks that weren't recorded were taken down shorthand by Diamata and are published by SRF, they publish the parts that they want to publish and don't publish the rest of it. And even though when Master was alive, when he came to this country, one of his original aims and ideals was to found World Brotherhood colonies, um, communities in other words, in which people of all walks of life could band together and practice plain living and high thinking, is how he put it. And his own intention at the property at Encinitas was to found a community. And he tried to. He had householders there and he tried to make it work. He had school children there. He was uh, developing businesses, a papaya grove, a carrot juicing company, a, a restaurant, all these different things, all with the idea of how will the community support itself? It was all very conscious on his part. He, he wasn't thinking of a little ashram of monks and nuns. He was thinking of a, a place where families and uh, working people would be. And he, he just had this whole story going on. Um, Swamiji lived with Master for the last three and a half years of his life. And he said every time Master talked in public, he would also talk about communities. And he wouldn't merely just mention them in passing. He would exhort people. Um, to band together and save your money and pool your resources and go live in the country and 
get off of the treadmill and escape from all these unnecessary necessities. And uh, Swami said he thundered. He didn't merely, as I say, mention it casually. He, and then he also warned. He thundered not only as an inherently good idea that people should build communities, but he also warned, and the words he used were, you don't know what a terrible cataclysm is coming. He said, you know, corner of the earth will be safe. He said, money won't be worth the paper it's printed on, that a terrible depression is coming, and that you really need to get yourselves together in a simple lifestyle where you have support, supportive friends and are not so reliant on this society which is going to change. Of course, it's 50 years ago now. The sense of his, the urgency of it would have made us think at least in small mortal terms that would have long since come, um, which causes some people perhaps to doubt the uh, truth of what he said, but not probably the people in this room. But in all of that, communities figured very prominently. However, among the many reasons, by the end of his life, the, it was clear to him that the Encinitas colony as such was not going to, to come together. Um, the way Swami put it was that married couples, Master himself said, married couples were just sort of too close out of the depression. They were too concerned about their own little realities. And as Master put it, you criticize one half of the marriage and they go and get their spouse to support them. And then pretty soon you get a letter from the spouse accusing you of mistreating their wife or their husband. And he said they support each other in their negativity. Of course, that wasn't completely true. He had Dr. and Mrs. Lewis and others. But nonetheless, he just didn't find that family people were, as a group, were able to accept what he had in mind. Swamiji also proposes that there was a certain tension between the already established monastic order and the householders and the necessary compromises in the way their lives were conducted that just inevitably come in when you have couples and children as opposed to when you just have monks and nuns. And the, the real um, ded- dedication among Master's disciples was in the monastic order, and it just wasn't possible in his lifetime. So as a result, Master gave it up. But Swamiji writes in the path how Master lamented at the end of his life, Encinitas is gone, Encinitas is gone. Now, of course, Encinitas was still there, it was thriving, in fact. It was a beautiful place, and it's one of the most outstandingly holy and inspiring places of uh, all of Master Shrines in Southern California. But what he meant was his ideal of starting a community was gone. It just wasn't going to happen in his lifetime. Then furthermore, Swamiji describes how in July of, uh, let's see, was it July of 48? Do I have that correct? Or 49? July of 49, I think, when Master Smoke spoke in Beverly Hills. Uh, it's what we consider often the birthday of Ananda because it was Master putting the thought into the ether that youths must go north, south, east, and west and cover the earth with little colonies. I love that. Demonstrating the efficacy of the self-realization method and how it can really uplift and change the world. And Swami said there were several hundred people there, but he, he was the only one who really responded to what Master was saying. Of course, Swamiji had had the desire the serious desire to found a community since he was 15 years old, long before he met Master. In fact, Swami actually says he can't really remember a time in his life when it wasn't somehow always in the back of his mind. But at the age of 15, it became very conscious, and he remained very serious about it and thought about it a great deal and 
uh, would, would write little stories and talk to his friends and contemplate how it could be done and reflect on different ways it would work. And as he said, it wasn't... And then when he met Master and heard Master talk about founding communities, it was, it was thrilling to Swamiji because it had been a desire he'd always had. But as he put it, Master's teaching, self-realization and the search for God and founding a community based, unified by the desire for self-realization, as Swami said, was the missing ingredient. Because prior to that, whenever he would think it through, he, would always, he could always see that it wasn't going to necessarily coalesce. And he'd read enough history of, of other communities, he could see that there was something missing. But once you put in there the search for self-realization, he could see how the whole thing would come together in, a, in, the, in the perfect way that he imagined it in his mind, which indeed it has. Well, after Master died, Swamiji was very interested in you know, getting on with spreading Master's work and expanding his mission. And since this was so clearly a passion of Master's, he was chomping at the bit to get going. And he finally had a conversation at one point with Diamata. When are we ever going to start working on Master's idea of founding uh, colonies, making communities? And Diamata answered him, and she's the president of SRF. She said, frankly, I'm not interested. Now, there was no need for her to be interested. She was born to do something else. And Swamiji himself says, in retrospect, the whole style of SRF really would have made a community impossible. The, the, the strong focus on monasticism, the centralization, the institutionalism, thousands and thousands of things. Really, SRF could never have started a community. So in a very real sense, she was speaking from inspiration to say she wasn't interested. But Swami was profoundly interested. And of course, when he found himself um, expelled from SRF and out on his own, and he was, he was anxious to serve Master, but anxious not to compete with SRF because he had the thought in his mind that someday we could be reunited. Community seemed like an obvious thing to do. He's always wanted to do it anyway. So he dedicated himself to it, as we all know, um, really just poured heart, mind, and soul, bone marrow and red blood corpuscles into really making it happen uh, uh, at a level of effort that's difficult for us to conceive because we came in essentially after that tapasya was done. Um, anytime anything new is created, it always is built on, on someone or some group of people's tapasya. Tapasya is a wonderful Sanskrit word which doesn't have an equivalent in English. We generally um, define it as austerities, um, somebody's self-sacrifice. But in fact, it has a more subtle definition. We were watching a Hindi movie once at Ananda Village. We, from time to time, there were movies about saints. This was a wonderful movie called Gyandev. I don't know if anybody can ever find it again. About a saint, Gyandev. And uh, we, we knew almost, none of us knew Hindi at all. I don't think hardly any of us had been to India or anything. So it was all subtitled. And then one of the characters said the word tapasya, which we knew because it has a spiritual connotation, and the um, subtitle said devotion. And it made us all laugh, like we all laughed, you know, like, oh, that's because we all... Tapasya was sort of like... Swamiji was giving a lot of Sanskrit names at that time, and you would ask him for a name, and you'd sort of wait to see, and there was always a little bit of anxiety for fear that you'd get a name that would make demands of you that you weren't prepared to live up to. And so we were always afraid if somebody would get the name of Tapasyananda or Tapasyadasi or something like that, <laughs> something that would just really put you in a spot. So when we laughed at that, later on Swamiji said, no, he said, that's a very accurate translation of the word. 
Because you see that these words have meanings that are so much more subtle than we can uh, come up with in English. That's why we end up using saying tapasi because there's no other word for it. Because it isn't sacrifice in the way that the Christians have developed the concept of sacrifice, which is hanging on the cross and suffering so much and I just feel so terrible but I feel fine because I'm doing it for God and God is pleased because I'm suffering. It's not at all like that. It's the austerity that is, is only an apparent austerity. It's turning away from that which is limiting to embrace that which is infinite out of, out of love for God because there's greater, because you will experience greater love, not because God is a, a merciless taskmaster who asks of you the sacrifice of everything that would give you pleasure, but rather because of your love for God, you prefer that reality than this ever-changing reality. And so, just like in Autobiography of a Yogi, when Master spoke to um, the, I can't remember which saint it was now, Baduri Mahashaya, I think is his name, the one who always stayed upstairs and only came downstairs sometimes. And he had been a wealthy man, but had renounced his wealth for his spiritual life. And Master said, I understand you gave up a fortune uh, to become a renunciate. And he said, a handful of rupees for an infinite treasure. He said, worldly people are the true renunciates. Now that's the spirit of a real devotee of God, which is, I haven't given up anything. The more I focus my life directly on the infinite, the more rich and full my life becomes. And that's the true meaning of tapasya. And so there is an understanding in, uh, in India, in, in common sense, in fact, that whenever something new is created, in order to create you have to channel a great deal of energy. You have to bring into manifestation a a form and a a flow of energy that wasn't there before. And that energy has to come from somewhere. And one of the places it comes from is from the tapasya of individuals or or those who are dedicated to it. All of this is to say when the founding of Ananda for Swamiji took an enormous amount of tapasya. Sant Keshavadas, who is now passed away, but he was a a spiritual man of some uh, realization, when he visited Ananda and he just looked at it and he said, my, what a lot of tapasya you must have done to found this place. And Swami never, um, exo- ex- uh, he never made a big deal about his own role in it at all. In fact, just the opposite. So Sant Keshavdas was saying something that a lot of us had just not ever even really focused on. How much tapasya was required. And on, on one level, if you look at it, you would think that a lot of the people who were there in the first decade or so did a lot of tapasya lived very humbly, had very little of, our, of their own, you know, worked very hard, but I can speak from direct experience. It didn't feel like tapasya, or it felt like true tapasya. It was pure devotion. There was just no sense of lack involved at all. It was just as, as the richest. We, we, we lived abundantly at that time. But from the outside, it looked like tapasya, looked like austerity, but not from the inside because the spirit was there. Well, all of that is to say that Swamiji understood that Master really wanted this. Now SRF has actually removed from his aims and ideals the concept of World Brotherhood colonies. They speak now of the goodwill of all peoples or something like that. And they assert that Master changed his mind about wanting communities. But it's it's just an institutional rewrite of history, too common even to comment on. It's really simply saying it it was Swami's to do and therefore ours to do. But, but you also have to appreciate how, ex- how fundamental this is to Master's vision 
of how self-realization will infiltrate the West. Now, again, because we're talking to each other here, I'm preaching to the choir, and so I can just take these things as assumption without apology. No, the Master sent, Jesus appeared to Babaji in the Himalayas and said, they're doing real well serving the poor, but they've really missed the point. We've got to do something about it in the West. And so this whole lineage was started with Babaji, Lahiri, Sri Yukteswar to master to create this tremendous flow of energy that would bring self-realization and Kriya Yoga to the West in response to the, the prayer of love that went up from earth and God responded to it, that we really need something, folks. It's, it's not going well here. We're getting really, 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 really rich and really, really, really confused. And, the, and gadgetry and all this everything that's written in this book everything that's been all the chapters until now all of these false gods are coming in and they're not wrong in themselves but they have been elevated to a status that they don't deserve the free market competitive system the communistic system the uh, over scientific approach that just doesn't take into account inspiration or evolution of consciousness or love, or feeling, and just uh, the, the belief that there's no d- direction to life, that Swami even says in here, <coughs> when you say to someone, you're making a value judgment, that's like a negative statement. It's like, that, that, oh, I shouldn't make a value judgment. Well, for God's sakes, of course you can make a value judgment. There's just so many things to make value judgments about, and people have become so stupid. I just... I caught a glimpse of something in a newspaper about some young man who murdered another young person. I just saw it just for a second. And he described what he did, what they did, a group did, in terms of some popular television show. It was like we did a so-and-so, and then he named some show. I don't even know what it was. But, but now, I mean, that's so obvious. But yet, you will hear sociologists and psychologists talk about whether or not that kind of violence depicted on radios, television, and video games actually promotes violence. You know? And there'll be long discussions about it as if, as if we don't have brains because then you're making value judgments and you're you know, this and this. It's just so, like, for people of any sense at all, it's just so crazy. We are in big trouble here. But the undercurrent of this country and the undercurrent of souls being born on the planet right now and the karma of the planet... The karma of the planet demands that a new consciousness come forward because this planet has a divine purpose to serve and it's been serving the purpose of of Kali Yuga energy. You know, the the cosmos has needed a Kali Yuga planet to send people to and now it's going to be, this planet's going to become a Dwapara Yuga planet so all the appropriate things have to be put in place to sort of make this a Dwapara Yuga vibration and a Dwapara Yuga friendly environment. And all the, then all the Kali Yuga types are going to have to go somewhere else. And the Dwapara Yuga types who've been hanging out somewhere else are going to have to come here. It's all this enormous, endless cycle created entirely and only for our self-realization. For, you know, yours and mine and everybody else who's here. It has no other reality. But that is the reality. And so we get, you know, for our self-realization, we get to kind of get in the wake of this great avatar. The avatar comes, the whole thing gets sent, and we have a destiny, which is our self-realization depends upon the passion with which we will embrace this project. Because this is the fourth and last stage. 
that we determine that we will give our lives for the salvation of others. And even if we're still at the third stage, we're at least looking toward the fourth, we may be, and, and we fall back into the second, where we're in the state of rebellion, and then we decide at least to get into the quest, and eventually we have to go to the fourth and last stage. This really has to come at some point, that we give our lives for the sake of others. Maybe we weren't perfectly free before we decided to do this, but it all blends together. This is what we have to follow. So the avatars came, and there was a cry went through the astral worlds, and we're basically Swami's team. You know, we're, we're Swami's squadron within the greater army, within the greater nation, and so on. You know, Master had a team, and then there was the community's team, the Ananda community's team, and basically that's us. And whether you're in the community or not, you're part of that team. That's why we're here. It's not that uh, you know, Swami doesn't replace Master in any sense, but he had a particular job, and he needed his, his crew just like everywhere you go, you kind of get your crew. Every time we change colony leaders, which we'd hardly do ever anymore, but we used to, then there would always be a big turnover because everybody had to find their own crews. Every time a company changes its boss, every time a department within Ananda changes its leadership, there's always a little bit of a shakedown. Some people come in, some people come out, because you just find your little karmic group and then you move with it. All of our Ananda colonies, in a most interesting way, are forming their own little karmic groups. And some people belong to many of them and move around, and other people just sort of land somewhere and you become a Portland or a Seattle or an Ananda village or a Rhode Island person. That's just really who you are, maybe for a decade, maybe for your whole incarnation, who knows. But, but we, there is a team and we have a purpose here, and that purpose is to help bring self-realization to this planet, to help bring Master's Ray to this planet. This is not a sectarian mission. And Swamiji is always constantly, Master said, we are not a sect. We are not a sectarian work. We are not here to establish an institution. We are establishing principles. We are restoring the foundation of all true spirituality. And Swami makes a a wonderful explanation in this book of the difference between religion and spirituality, which we can come to in a little while. But nonetheless, we have a project to do for God. And really, absolutely central to that project are these communities. For all the reasons that Swami, it's very interesting, because he has to explain it sociologically and historically in this book. He doesn't, he can't talk about it as master's commission given to him, you know, he was born for this and none of those things. He doesn't say any of that. He just explains sociologically that if we want to bring a better planet, I mean, if we just have a hope for a better world, hey folks, here's a really good idea. Why don't we try this? In fact, he says it with more passion than that. But he's really saying there's everybody realizes something needs to be done. Let's think about communities. And I'll, in a moment, sort of reiterate, just to put them crystal clear in our own minds, sort of all the reasons why it's a good idea. When uh, Ananda started, of course, as, as Ananda Village in Nevada City. It was the first community, and for many years it was simply the definition of Ananda. Swamiji followed Master's ideal, went out to the country, got land, got people together, and there was no, there just was no other Ananda. There were a few people here and there, but uh, Ananda meant that rural property. And now, like 16, 17 years ago, um, about halfway through Ananda's history, we sort of had reached the point where Enough people were trained and the concept was clear enough that we could begin to sort of move out from that environment to a, a, a larger world. And m- many of you have heard me describe this. There were, 
a group of people had gone to Sacramento and had started um, a community there, and Nantes is always quick to remind us that they're, they're the first. We're not the first. And in fact, a group of people were in San Francisco renting the big uh, mansion that we had up there for like eight or nine, or we had a long, long history there. Palo Alto had a group house. We had ashram houses is what we had. We didn't have communities, but we had houses and enterprises and so on. It was very dynamic what was going on. But most of the time still, if you went to live in one of those places from Ananda village, always in your mind is that you were going into exile and would get to go home. There just was no commitment to another way of life. And then Anant and Maria went to Sacramento and David and I came to this area. And when we first came here, we were advised by people with more experience than us that you, you face this terrible dilemma when you went to live away from Ananda village. And, and this is what it was, which is that you would meet many people who were good devotees. And of course, having good devotees in your meditation center is what made it dynamic. But the problem was, anybody who was really a good devotee would become interested enough to move to Ananda village. <laughs> and so you could actually never develop any magnetism or any develop anything where you were. And in fact, you, you really shouldn't even seriously try. Because if anybody was serious, you would want them to go up to Ananda village, just get out of wherever they were. Now, of course, the times were changing. And we saw that that uh, model would just never work. Because if there was going to ever be um, more colonies, if this work was ever going to grow, it had to change its form in some way or another. People had to understand that you didn't have to live in the country. You, you could be a devotee wherever you were. It had to be possible. It, 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 otherwise, it couldn't grow. So there was a, it's like a shift in consciousness at that point that Anant and Maria and we were the first wave of that. And, and we decided to just, on Swami's advice, to essentially... What he said to us is, replicate as much as you can. You know, everything that there is at Ananda Village, see if you can create it here, which we're trying. <laughs> we haven't gotten anywhere near that far yet. But uh, now, let me see what I was going to try to say. Oh, yeah, so we, we had the idea to make a community because, for one thing, we'd always lived in community and it was really, really boring to live in these little houses. The, the big community house was, was too um, chaotic for us and the little tiny suburban house was too absurd. It was the only way I can think of to put it. It was just so odd after 16 years in community to find myself just in this little house. I mean, I love living with David. We had lots of people over. Uh, it, was, it was right for the time. But I'll never forget when the man came to mow the lawn because we were renting the house. And I looked out my window and two feet out my bedroom window was a man taking care of the property I was living in. I'd never seen him before in my life and he wasn't a friend. It was like the first time in, in 15 years that I'd had anybody intimately related to my life that, wasn't, that, di that I didn't have a multi-level relationship with. Isn't it interesting? I mean, that was so odd to me. Of course, it's perfectly common, and now I've grown used to it. But it shocked me. I'll never forget just being shocked by that realization and also realizing what a charmed life I'd led. Okay? But it, it, it fired us up with zeal. And etc., etc. And so we thought apartment houses were natural communities. All you had to do was get one. So we, we started out with Nancy Kendall's help and the help of many others, and the rest is history. You see what we have. So about a year after we got this community, Swamiji came and we did a dedication service, and this was really where I was trying to get. I had a very odd feeling. 
I was introducing him, saying something about what had happened. It had been a real adventure to get the community. We were all extremely exhilarated. It was a, a thrilling moment. I had an in, in, incredible sense, standing there in front of that microphone, of having played, played a part in a great pre-written drama, and where I had thought that I was acting on some level with some independence, and I became aware of the fact that I had just been on a track. Now, on one hand, I, I knew that. I, I knew always David and I would say, we're just on a moving train. We're not doing anything. We're just on a moving train. We're describing the scenery as we go. But, this is, but it was so obvious that there was forces so much bigger than any of us, and we had merely fallen in line with them. And then Swamiji got up to speak, and he was, he was marvelous. And he just said, just very matter-of-factly, he said, Babaji really wanted this, this community to happen. And we thought, Babaji? You know, it was just like such a thought. Here we are in, in our community, sitting there. And so I'm just saying that Babaji really wanted this community to happen. And it was, it was so amazing to realize that that was just true. And then Swamiji went on to talk in just simply the most practical manner. If you were the masters up in you know, the Himalayas, like thinking this thing through, and you were looking at a, a completely uncongenial society that had no relationship to what it is that we're trying to give to them. We want to, to show people the efficacy of meditation, of seeking God, of living simply, of, of cooperation instead of competition. Every single thing that's written in this book. You know, all the different isms that Swamiji took on and described where they break down. If you wanted to, to describe the polar opposite of those, you can talk about them, but people only, only a few people will relate to that. But if you can demonstrate it, and you can't just demonstrate it just through Paramhansa Yogananda, you have to demonstrate it through people that other people can look at and say, you yeah, know, that's just like me. He's just like me. She's just like me. They're just like our family. And look what they're doing. And look how different their reality is from the reality that we live in. So Swamiji said, well, how would you do it? Well, you need to, for one thing, you need to have more than one of them at a time. Because he, he describes again in this chapter, he talks about it. If there's one person who's meditating and doing Kriya Yoga and is very calm and goes to the office and doesn't get rattled like everyone else gets rattled and you know, handles things gracefully, but there's, there's a very strong inclination to say, what a special person you are. I mean, how many times have we said that? Oh, he's such a special person. She's such a special person. But if you see, as Swamiji is also fond of saying, you see a whole crowd of people who all seem to have some unusual quality, but you can tell that a lot of them are just otherwise ordinary people. It has to be not something they were born with. It has to relate to what they're doing. You know, just like all these studies, if everybody eats bran and then these are the statistics, if everybody eats a low-fat diet and these are the statistics, people are used to thinking that if everybody does one thing and it all comes out a certain way, that proves the truth of it. So Swamiji speaks, spoke of Babaji and the Himalayas just planning this out. Because where does Master get his ideas? Master was sent by Babaji and by Christ to fulfill this. He didn't make this up. In fact, once when one of the devotees asked him, he said, you speak of the, uh, the church of all religions, but in fact, it's really Christianity and Hinduism. That's all you're really dealing with. Well, how come? Why don't you really, really be a church of all religions? Master's answer was very simple. It's the wish of Babaji that it be this way. 
Oh, that's a very revealing statement. It's the wish of Babaji. I'm not here on my own. This is not a, something that I, Yogananda, have made up. I was sent here. And he often says, I was sent here by the great masters of India. I was not sent to dogmatize you, but to dye you in the wool of, of God communion. I was sent by the masters of India, the line of gurus that sent me. He says this over and over again. So Babaji and Jesus are in the Himalayas somewhere, the way the story is described. I, you know, it's hard to kind of visualize Jesus walking up and, and sharing a cup of tea, but maybe, who knows? I don't know how it works. But somehow those forces of consciousness were put in place. And if, if we're going to change the society, we have to uh, set in motion those things that actually will change the society. And part of what is so mixed up about this culture is that we no longer understand how change takes place. And part of our thinking is we get the government to do it. We get these big edicts to do it. We, we create violent revolutions. We set up new systems of economics. We no longer even remember how change really takes place. And in this chapter, Swami talks at great length about the role that the monasteries played in affecting the whole direction of culture all through the Dark Ages. And everybody knows that they did and that the monasteries played those, that great role. But everybody says it's because they preserved the literature and the literacy and the books and so on like that. Swamiji says that they preserved the society because they were in love with God and they were the channel for superconsciousness, and that everything else they did was just the form of what they did, but they were the channel for superconsciousness. They were the, the little beam where that light kept in. And so the effect that they had on the world around them was all out of proportion to who they were. It doesn't make sense unless you talk about it that way. Unless you also understand what, that, what the power of that higher consciousness is and how everything, and this is the, the premise that Swami has built systematically from the first page of this book, how everything really comes from the individual and is related to consciousness. It's not really about all these external forms. The, the, the center of reality is each individual person. The, the, the definition of, of their nature is the, the aspiration of their consciousness, and that's, that's how the whole thing works. So, Master had this tremendous desire planted in him by God. And you know what's very interesting? Is it's what Jesus taught also. Because the first thing that the early Christians did is they formed communities. If you read... I was so startled when I first actually read the Bible, which was you know, well into my life at Ananda. And I read all the Acts of the Apostles, which is sort of what happened after Jesus, was, uh, after Jesus died. But what happened was all the disciples got together. And of course, there's the tradition that there was the Essene community was already in existence, which was this small, intentional, spiritually united group from which Jesus and his uh, essential disciples sprang but perhaps it was because that model had been preserved. But all the first disciples gathered together in communities and they pooled their resources and they lived together and they had, they had ways of being. I spoke to one of my Episcopal priest friends sort of saying, you know, what was this about? His explanation was they all thought the world was about to end because the second coming of Christ was going to come. And I just thought, oh, that's just too silly an explanation because that wasn't what Jesus meant by the second coming of Christ. He meant that uh, divine consciousness would dawn and the, e the ego would die and Christ's consciousness would be born in them. 
He, he never, it, it was never the apocalyptic end of the world vision that later less enlightened people said it was. So they couldn't possibly have done it for that reason. They did it because Jesus told them to. That's the only possible reason. I was saying to Swamiji, Jesus must have taught intentional communities. And he said, yes, of course he did. For exactly the same reason. It was an extraordinarily uncongenial time. And they were trying to start a new movement. And they needed to gather together for all the exact same reasons that we need to do it now. It's fascinating when you sort of think of it as that, that long tradition. And this is like a, it's not just a matter of communities are the way people have always lived and now there's been the breakdown of society. It's quite different than that because intentional, spiritually based communities have not been the way society has always lived. People have lived in communities based on economics and geography and, and jobs and things like that. But to come together for the express and primary purpose of, of self-development. I mean, that's, that's always been a minority movement. But that's what it is that this is about. And, and Swamiji's desire in writing this book was to put before people, in the way that Master never actually wrote it out, what it is that he was really seeing, what Master was really seeing. Because Swamiji says, Master just made these intuitive leaps, is how he put it. And that's why uh, Master's words need editing. Uh, when he would write commentary on the Bible or the Bhagavad Gita, he would make all these intuitive leaps. He would just start with one thought and then he would jump to another and there would be a huge bridge that, that needed to be built for, for most people to sort of see how this point led to this point. So Amaji said when he was editing the Rubaiyat especially, you know, he had to meditate very, very long and hard sometimes just to find that sentence or two that would make the bridge. And Master didn't have the patience or the time or the interest in making those bridges. So even his um, dedication to communities and the way he presented it, there was a, a lot of pieces, rational pieces, missing. And that's what Swami wanted to put in. He wanted to build the case so that individuals who are concerned about the social betterment of the planet and individuals who have this inner longing for something more can sort of grab a hold of this and say, you know, this would really work. And of course, there's a cosmic hour happening right now because communities are of great interest. I was just talking to someone. I think I probably offended them. They were saying something about communities. It turns out they're part of some group in the area that's related to community living or for the study of communities or something like that. And I said the phrase something about Ananda, and I said, well, you know, Ananda really is the only game in town, which was not the right thing to have said. <laughs> and the person was sort of like, said something, muttered something like, I, I didn't pick up the cue at all, I wasn't listening, clearly. But something of, well, there's, you know, lots going on. I said, yeah, but Ananda's the only one who's ever gotten anything together in all these years. <laughs> no, I can say that with you all. I shouldn't have said it to that person. But in fact, it's true. It's an odd sort of thing, but Swamiji writes, not in here, but he writes in a place called Ananda. He said Ananda itself, he writes about his own diffidence in terms of his own tremendous reluctance to in any way call attention to himself or make any point of his own accomplishments. And he says, he he goes, there's a long chapter in a place called Ananda where he talks all about that and and does a lot more sort of self-analysis than he's usually inclined to do in anything else he's written. But he says Ananda is reflective because 
he's trained us all, and he's he trained us in his own style. And part of it is, as he puts it, there's a wonderful humility to the people at Ananda because they've modeled themselves on him. He hasn't set the tone of, I'm the leader, I'm important, I'm the one who gets to do things, I am this, I am that, at all. At the same time, he said, Ananda itself suffers from that because he said, we're just such a well-kept secret. People are so... um, People who are interested in communities never look at us. It's just the most ridiculous thing. Partly they dismiss us, strangely enough, because we're spiritual. And they think that somehow we don't count. It's very true. And we have, we, we have the, to overcome that same obstacle to a certain extent in our school. It's an interesting issue. Therefore, Swami's the last pages of this chapter in which Swamiji really explains what it is to be spiritual and why we are and where, what God really means and how that plays in. It was a question that I think it might have been you or someone at the very beginning of the class or maybe Sarah asked the question, can you have a community that's not spiritual? And so Swamiji really goes after that question and, and what he's saying is certainly what we have found to be true. In the, in the early years of Ananda, we tried to teach people how to do communities without there being any spiritual base because everybody wanted to do a community without having to bother with being a spiritual person. But we we finally realized that we were just being completely insincere. And also, we didn't have the capacity to teach anyone how to have a community without there being a spiritual base, because everything about the way Ananda works is based on the fact that we're unified behind these principles. And it's not, yes, of course, it's God's grace, and that's absolutely true, and Yogananda's blessings, there's just no question about that. But more than that, what makes Ananda work is that we are all deeply, personally committed to our own personal development. And we're, we're looking first to, to within ourselves and only secondarily to one another. Swamiji himself once was introduced, as important as the subject of communities is to him, he was introduced once at a conference, and I think it might even have been about communities, and as he was the, the primary person there who'd actually started a community, they introduced him as the, quote, father of the cooperative communities movement. And he stood up and said, I really don't care about communities, which was a sort of odd thing to say in the light of what he was supposed to talk about. But his answer was, he said, I'm interested in helping people attain self-realization. And he said, community is a natural byproduct of that. And, and in a peculiar sort of way, Ananda's communities have happened automatically. People are always asking us, for how do you handle this and how do you handle that? And we sort of scratch our heads and we say, well, it never comes up. You know, how do you handle this problem? How do you handle that problem? Well, it never comes up. Because what we have handled is exactly what Swami writes about in here. We've handled how to draw people's consciousness into the right vibration and into the right spirit. And you don't need any systems after that. As he says, if the spirit is right, any system will work. And if the spirit is wrong, no system will work. And he's concentrated all his attention on training us as community members how to have the right spirit. And everything else will follow from that. And you simply cannot uh, inspire people to change their consciousness and put aside their egoic desires for the sake of solar energy or permaculture. (laughs) You know, people just won't do it. Why? Because intuitively they know that there's no fulfillment for them in that. There may be a little pleasure, a little this, a little that. But what you have to come to is you have to come to a really deep understanding of of your own self-interest. Adam Smith wasn't wrong. 
Self-interest is what moves it. You have to gradually come to understand where your true fulfillment and self-interest lies. And when you really see that, then you're motivated. And, of course, we can talk a little bit you know, more in a few minutes about just how the community works to make that happen. But if the community creates that, that's all it has to do. Everything else follows naturally from that. And it's this great secret, um, that, and we have to just overcome this thought of God and religion and spirituality, overcome the prejudices and the wrong understandings associated with that, because it's essential for this community movement ever to really launch is for people to accept that divine aspiration has to be at the heart of it, or else it's never going to get anywhere. Okay, that might be a good time for a break. Let's take a break. Do you have any questions or comments or thoughts about anything I was saying at the beginning, about communities, about our little roles in them? Anything anyone wants to say? Does the subject interest you? Yeah. All right. Um, there were many things about. Pardon me. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm just curious about other communities um, that maybe have approached us about getting started. Or well, Amachi's um, Amachi's uh, Amachi told her devotees that he she wanted them to start communities and base them on Ananda, and so they groups of people came over and talked to a lot of people at Ananda Village, but. Um, it's a big job to start a community. We, we're not sought out all that much because people see us in a class by ourselves. I'm not sure exactly why. I just think it's not time yet. I think it's just an, it's sort of an underground thing and there'll just come a time when we'll be able to help people. When people are ready to see it the way we're seeing it. Uh, right now, they, they just people don't see it the way we see it. They're seeing it... Well, they see it more in terms of... Um, other kinds of systems. They get together for other reasons. Um, they have architectural ideas, they have environmental ideas, they have political ideas. And uh, it's, so it's hard to talk to us about those things because we'll talk right away about consciousness. Well, yeah. Right. But there's a great interest in communities. There's just not a kind of interest yet that allows us to play the kind of role we could play because people would have to accept that consciousness is the issue. They don't have to accept that, you know, that being a disciple of Yogananda and doing Kriya Yoga is an issue, but they would have to accept that consciousness is the issue. You see, that's the, that is the key to the whole thing. That's why throughout this, Swami keeps coming back to everything, either everything is conscious or nothing is conscious. You know, what is the answer here? And then where, what role does consciousness play? And a lot of times when we you know, trying to explain to people what we're doing, we should really just talk to them in terms of it's all really about consciousness. You can come to God afterwards, but you can come to God through the concept of consciousness, of higher consciousness, of tuning in, of super-consciousness, and that that's really where our reality is about. Swami talks about Darwin's idea of evolution being mechanistic and related so much to the physical but on the human level, really, in fact, in all levels, the evolution is really of awareness. It's an expansive awareness. That's what really defines evolution. And he points out that you know, human beings have not changed much physically for really, for a really, really long time. 
but there's but it's clear that you see the evolution all around you even just in people and it's it, it's a question of expansiveness and expansion of sympathy and um, charity of heart this is how we evolve and that as human beings we have the capacity to stand back and reflect upon that evolution and we have the capacity as he points out to hasten it to derail it to redirect it we have all these different choices that we can make that make it very very different than just thinking of it as a mechanistic process and also we have the the capacity as human beings and this is what guides us to stand back and ask the question what do I want out of life and how am I going to obtain it and we have a society now that's just giving us just totally false answers. When I was first read Yogananda's commentaries on the Bible um, and appreciated, even though I wasn't raised Christian, I was raised Jewish, but nonetheless we, one picks up without ever studying it a certain vibe about what Christianity is. And when I read Yogananda's commentaries on the Bible and really cognized how very different his explanation was than anything that any of the churches were teaching. I just remember I was in seclusion. I was, it was a warm day and I was sitting in this little chair right outside my trailer. And I, and it was, I was silent and alone in a, in an outdoor, you know, woods. And I remember just closing the book for a minute because I was just overwhelmed with what was inside that book compared to anything that anybody had ever told me. And I just sort of had to stop and and, uh, there was this like exquisite moment of just silence just appreciating what difference and then the thought came to me until I came to Ananda nobody ever taught me anything that was true nobody ever told me the truth about anything and by that I meant the, the deeper truth because not that people were holding back they just simply didn't know I mean in retrospect my uh, my parents raised me I'm very grateful for the way they raised me. My father raised me especially to be extremely honorable. And I was joking once saying, you know, uh, myself and my brother and sister, we can't even litter, you know, with a good conscience. (laughs) He just just trained us to be so, and my mother too, to be just so exact about so many things in terms of moral and ethical standards. So I I did learn something that was true. But nobody ever even hinted at the meaning of it all because they didn't have a clue. It was just as simple as that. And all of a sudden, here's a clue. And, and there's this growing um, movement in our culture. People are all thinking like this, how to live simpler and be happy. It's just this whole thought. But, but very few people, as Swami himself writes, really have the courage to follow a thought to the end point or even more to have the courage to risk embracing something that hasn't already been endorsed. In other places, Swamiji writes about how amusing it is to go to a modern art museum or you know, some place where the art is transparently hideous. And there's just no way that you can actually relate to it. But you have to, everybody stands around and waits to see you know, which way the wind is blowing. And then you'll jump on the bandwagon. And he loves to tell the story about how Picasso put out a new painting and let everyone really praise it and then... Um, said that it had been painted by his pet monkey. You know, just really making fun of everyone. But then he said, there's no reason why my monkey can't paint a Picasso. <laughs> it was just sort of like... But it was so disrespectful. And 
mocking of people's realities, but also there's great truth in it. You're relating to the consciousness of a monkey. That's nothing that's uplifting at all. But it shows you what his paintings are like. Maybe some of you like them, but anyway. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that people tend to follow the norm, what's ever there. But there is, you see, already the self-realization movement is working in the sense that people are beginning, and Dwapar Yuga is coming, people are beginning to ask themselves, what will really make me happy? But it's very hard for us to get off of the treadmill yet and really risk everything by creating a new lifestyle. So Swamiji is saying it's just necessary for there to be very um, cogent, clear examples. And the job of all of us, and it may not bear fruition in our lifetime at all, is just to really establish a community. So it seems like a natural way of life. Now, already we've raised a whole generation of children for whom it's just natural. Jocelyn Black said something that was very interesting. Jocelyn is, lives in our community now, and she's, she wasn't born at Ananda, but her family brought her there when she was eight years old. And so she grew up there and just imbibed the Ananda spirit and, and never was particularly interested it was just what was going on around her. She wasn't against it, but she wasn't drawn to it either, although she is now. But, but she tells a very interesting story. She says she was at college. I think it was college, not high school, but I think it was college. And uh, one of the girls on their floor was in an accident and was killed suddenly. You know, it's a terrible thing to happen to a, a young person. And uh, a very popular girl, everybody really liked her. And Jocelyn, everybody was devastated. All the girls were just devastated. And of course, she was not happy about it, but she observed that she was the only one who had a context for it. She was the only one who could relate to it from some broader perspective because that's the way she was raised. And it was just so obvious to her. She knew where the girl had gone. She understood karma. She just had reincarnation, the astral world. She had so many things going for her. And it just made her realize what she had. You know, it wasn't, and she realized also it wasn't just my parents' thing. It's really mine because when difficulties come, that's how I, I face them head on is everything that was given to me. So already we're, you know, starting the next generation. But it's not from necessarily from people who are born into it that the power will come. But it's from people who see it. And, and Swami makes a, a wonderful case there using the monasteries as an example of the, of the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, of how communities will influence more than just by, the, by those who move there. He talks first, of course, by the example, but this I referred to earlier, by the subtle other aspect of it. He was saying it. What really inspired people uh, about the monastics was the quality of their consciousness. Because they not only believed in God, as Swami puts it, but at least the more true and committed ones, which, of course, in something like that, it's defined by those who really understand it. You always have gradations of understanding and clarity, but, but a movement like that is defined by the ones who really understand it. And so the heart of those monasteries, what kept them going, were people who not only, as Swami put it, believed in God, but actually loved God and communed with God and therefore radiated through their consciousness some of that divine vibration, some super-conscious energy. And it was that super-consciousness running through them in ways that nobody could really necessarily see or name, but that just went out 
and, and magnetically held people, as he described it perfectly, gave them hope. In a time when so much was falling apart and was so difficult and painful, just the vibration of those monasteries, knowing that those monks and nuns were there, living a very different life, tuned in a very different way, or, or that literally you could go there and receive guidance or inspiration or, or just peace. I mean, East-West Bookshop, when I had to write a little, just a little bit of advertising copy before James and Tricia arrived and could really do it, I, I, didn't, I don't work there and I didn't really know about it. And I had to, I just walked around and I talked to all the staff. You know, what is East-West to you? Every single person on the staff there mentioned that when people come in to East-West, you can see them visibly relax. And so many of them speak of it as a haven. You know, it's like, and because they don't necessarily have a church or an ashram that they're associated with or even a happy home life or a job that they like. So they just go to East-West and they find there some vibration that nurtures them. So people are extremely loyal. They just come back and come back and you know, buy things or spend time there because they want to be in that vibration. That vibration gives them hope. I mean, this is a retail store we're talking about. You know, this isn't a monastery or a community. It's a retail store. But the people there are attuned to higher awareness and they radiate it. But you just think of that little example and you think what a role that plays. Think about this um, church and what it does for people. I'm always, I'm very respectful of people's relationship to Ananda here. Uh, because over the years, I've, I've just grown to appreciate what it means. There are people who I, I would think are just peripheral to it, but then they'll explain to me just the extraordinary role that Ananda plays in their lives. And a lot of it, they'll describe it just exactly as Swami says it. It's just that we're here and, and that we exist, that this alternative exists. It, it, it's like a a beacon that helps them navigate the waters of their own lives. Now, that's not a small thing because people begin to measure their life against that. And the more power that we generate, the more opportunities there are for people to tune into that, the more um, effect it has. And that's how change really takes place. Swami says this over and over again, of course, from his perspective of consciousness and life experience and past life experience, he's always saying it's not that hard to change society. Just a a few people can change it. And he gives examples of how many times great movements, not the least of which is Buddhism and Christianity, um, enormous impact from a handful of people who are inspired and committed. Because most people are not. I don't know if it was in here or somewhere else, Swami wrote. He said, most people just want to live and enjoy their children and then enjoy their grandchildren. And there's just very few people who really are born on the planet with a desire to impact. And when a few of them get together with clarity, the whole world changes. You have uh, Gertrude Stein and her little group of people in Paris. You have uh, Thoreau in uh, Concord and the whatever they called, the Transcendentalists, whatever they called themselves. And you have Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci Of course, I mean, they were great souls, but there were very few of them. It was very small. Now, I don't say all of that to make us feel proud, because that would really be a counterproductive thing to do, wouldn't it? But I think I say it to make us inspired. I mean, I know that many of you feel, as I do with your lives, I mean, one of 
the great problems that I faced before I found Ananda was that I had a, a deep desire to be useful to people, but I just couldn't figure out how. I just couldn't figure out what I could do that would really help. First of all, I, I was such a, you know, a beanbag myself. There was not, not much to offer out. But, um, but also, I just didn't know what to, what to give people. You know, what could you really give them? I, couldn't, I didn't want to give them politics. It just there was nothing to give until the concept of self-realization came. And also, in, uh, the desire to help people, Haridas, who was soon going to be among us, one of Haridas' isms, which I always really appreciated, he said, it's a good thing my own self-realization would help, will help other people because otherwise I'm not sure I would be motivated. <laughs> you know, it's too much effort. But the thought that it's good for the planet kind of gets us going. But I also say that because those of us who are associated with Ananda should take it very seriously. We should be very generous in our support of it. I mean, financially, we should realize that uh, um, this is a great work being done for God. And we don't want to miss the boat. We don't want to sort of realize that we were busy storing up treasures to no purpose and this went wanting. I mean, we, we need to really see what it is that we have here. And, and it's all logical. I mean, I'm giving you like this exhortation based on a lifetime of commitment. But what was so fascinating to me is I, we just, I just saw our life described in this book, step by step by step. There it is. And the inexorable logic of it is right there. And here it is happening right in front of us. And we're part of it. You know, and are we sort of stingy, half-involved part of it? Or are we really wholehearted, um, at least if our karma doesn't allow us to be completely physically involved, are we at least wholehearted in our devotion and support and our support of whatever kind that we can give? Swamiji has often commented, he said that, he, I mean, you know, Swami is not given to remarks like this. He's really very modest. But he says he believes that history, he doesn't say, I believe, he just makes it as a statement, I'm toning it down. History will show the most important thing going on right now is Ananda. Isn't that odd? I mean, look around. Who would ever think that? Even in the community's movement, they don't notice us. (laughs) But it's because we're pioneering the solution. And that's what Master said, too. Um, Small, intentional communities will be the lifestyle of the future. The idea will spread like wildfire. And you look around and you think, gosh, we have a 10% vacancy rate in our own community right now. (laughs) You know, we hardly see a spark, what to speak of a conflagration. But nonetheless, I I deal with so many people in my life and I I see so much that, gosh, if they just lived in a community, they wouldn't be experiencing the difficulties they're experiencing. But I can't quite, it doesn't quite work for them yet because there aren't enough choices, the community style is still too, it's a little bit like, still a little bit like when we first moved here and the only way you could be part of Ananda was to live in that house with 26 other people and two bathrooms. I mean, it was a bit rigorous. Now you, <laughs> yeah, now you have to live by the train and in these tiny little um, shoe boxes. Um, and you know, it's not, it's just not everybody's cup of tea. And there just aren't that many choices. And if you don't live in one of the six cities where there's an Ananda, there just is no alternative. But still we can give it our heart. And in that respect, be part of God's project here. It's very, really quite exciting. And it's mostly exciting for all the reasons Swami said. It really will give hope. And you know, right now, my God, the country and the, 
the world is in such a weird place. I just, but I don't have much experience, but I think it's very peculiar for the leader of a nation like America to get on the television every night and talk about when you're going to go to war. It's just so odd. And then you have all these other people talking about they don't want him to, and you just, it's all so far beyond. I was saying, as I always say, thank God I'm not looking for satisfaction in that world. It would just be so painful and impossible because everybody's a scumbag, really. Some of them are worse than others. You know, some of them are worse than others. I'm very pro-America, and I'm probably even pro-President Bush, really, when you came right down to it. But that's not because he's Mahatma Gandhi. It's just because there we are. They're just all, they're all just doing something else. And uh, our assignment is to do this with such passion and such power um, that people will notice and, and can really solve their problems. They're not going to solve any of their problems the way they're dealing with it now. They're just going to have to blow each other to bits because that's just really what's going on. And they'll just blow each other to bits and then out of the ashes um, the true answers will arise. And thank God we can be part of that. So, unless there's any comments or questions, that may be the end of Hope for a Better World. And much as I have enjoyed it, I say I'm glad it's done. (laughs) This has been a real challenging book to work with. So I feel greatly gratified to have finished it. (laughs) Thank you all for coming. (laughs) 